Hi, Damien Marcus from 100 Not Out here. MP. Yes, Damo. We all know the importance of having a diary, but who wants a boring old day planner? Not me. Enter the journey of me. Ta-da! The incredible eight-month wellness journal designed especially for wellness peeps like you. Yes, Damo, this beautiful eight-month wellness guide is filled with questions, planners, exercises, reflective notes, and more. Endorsed by the Up For A Chat girls and loved the world over, the journey of me is a must-have if you're ready to live your best life for life. To purchase your very own journey of me and receive a free set of inspirational postcards, simply enter the code COUCH at www.wellandnew.com. That's www.w-e-l-l-i-n-e-u-x.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Welcome to another episode of The Real Food Real. Today on the show, I'm very excited to share that we have Dr. Phil Maffetone joining us. Now, Phil barely needs an introduction as he is a pioneer in our field and an internationally recognized expert on health, nutrition, and human performance, but I'll leave the rest to Phil to share with us, and without further ado, welcome him to the show. Hi, Phil, and Hi. thanks for <laughs> your Steph. time today. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be with you. Very excited to have you here, and I'd love for you to start uh, with a little bit of background about yourself and take us through your role as doctor, coach, and author. Well, they're all kind of tied together. Um, I don't. I, I've really never separated them out, um, which which makes it difficult to explain who I am and what I do. Uh, you know, I always I always have a fear when I fly somewhere because I always sit next to somebody who wants to introduce himself or herself to me and they say, hi, I'm, I'm Bob, I'm an accountant, what do you do? And I just don't, I don't have a name for what I do. I, I, you know, I do a lot of different things in terms of health and fitness and um, it, it typically comes down to the fact that I do what, what is needed in dealing with an individual. Uh, some people need more help with their their food intake, their nutrition, uh, others uh, their training, uh, others both. Uh, some people are uh, so stressed that it, even if they eat a good diet and train the right way, the stress uh, is killing them, so we have to deal with the stress. And of course, some people have a little bit of everything, and um, we have to prioritize things. And that's, what, that's what's... Um, really enjoyable about the work I've I've been doing uh for many years is that I've it, it's a challenge it's like um it's like a detective looking at the human body and saying well we have these clues and we have those clues but what really causes the problem what is the more primary thing that's causing the problem and that's what we want to deal with we don't want to treat symptoms we want to find causes. So uh, from one person to the next, it's quite 
uh, quite different, sometimes dramatically different, and uh, that that also makes it a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And from what I know of um, your work, it sounds like you certainly apply quite an intuitive approach to work out what that individual needs. It's intuitive in that um, I'm fortunate enough today to have uh, a lot of experience. Yeah. In the beginning, I didn't have the experience, so my intuition was still there, but it wasn't as fine-tuned, and as a result, I had to um, evaluate people more. I had to experiment more and don't let any healthcare practitioners say that they don't experiment. Um, that's why they call it being in practice. We practice on patients. Um, over time, we, we get to do it much better. Uh, and, and, of course, hopefully we, we avoid uh, hurting them in any way. But uh, we have to figure out what's going on. And, and for me, uh, the focus has always been to help the individual figure out how to be most healthy and how to be most fit. So I don't give schedules to athletes. Um, I have in the past on occasion, but more as a stepping stone. I don't give diets to patients. I don't give them lists of supplements to take. I, I help them determine what best matches their particular needs based on the physical, biochemical, and mental, emotional problems that they have. And Really, my job is to work myself out of a job because the ultimate goal is to help people take care of themselves. And so my, you know, my input should not be needed at some point because people should be able to say, okay, I could take it from here. Um, and that's, that's the way I've always worked. Um, it usually works out where people, uh, when I was in practice, when I had my clinic, which I no longer have, I would... I would still see people after we've worked things out and they, they started performing really well. Um, I would see them uh, once or twice a year. Uh, we'd we'd fine-tune them or help fine-tune them um, in those situations. But that's that's a, an approach I've always taken. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to look at it. You set the individual or the client up to be... Um, to be able to work autonomously and I think that's fantastic because you've obviously done your job as you say. Right and you know the problem in part is that we as a society have been influenced unfortunately by uh, uh, certainly a lot of advertising. We've been influenced influenced by uh, government uh, standards, so-called standards, so-called recommendations, which are influenced by lobbyists. So we are influenced by lobbyists. We're influenced by advertisements. Uh, we're influenced by, you know, healthcare professionals who are not as savvy as we thought they would be. So um, in, in a real sense, we as consumers have to manage your own health. I do that myself. I manage my own health, and I encourage people to manage their own health. Self-health management is, is a very, very important thing, and every animal that's not in captivity can do that except for humans. So um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very important thing that we need to, we need to take back that responsibility. We need to t get our intuition and our instincts back because – They've really, in in many cases, they've been taken taken away from us. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So let's talk more about nutrition. Um, I'd like to, I'd like you to share, I guess, your philosophy, and if we could talk more around, um, you know, carbohydrates and sports nutrition. Sure. I, I don't know that I have a philosophy. Mm. I thought you might uh, have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I told you it wouldn't be easy. <laughs> <That's> uh, okay. <laughs> uh, likewise with training, I don't, I don't have a philosophy. What I want to know is uh, are people getting better with what we're doing or what they're doing? Um, and if they are, can we measure it? And if we can see measurable improvements, then I'm fine with whatever they're doing. But I could tell you, uh, without playing games, that um, if, for example, you think that your body needs junk food, uh, you're, you're kidding yourself. You're so addicted that you can't think straight, whatever the explanation is. So um, in a sense, uh, you know, I do have a philosophy, and it's, it's uh, eating real food, natural food. Um, Humans have been doing that for millions of years, and uh, it's only been recently, uh, whether you want to look at the, the full spectrum of our evolutionary habits or uh, just in our you know, recent generations, uh, it's, it hasn't been that long ago that we started consuming very bad things, which are refined carbohydrates um, and um, the the end result is pretty clear. We've become a an overfat society, and we're not just talking about the obese people that we see sitting in a wheelchair or hear about, or our neighbors who's who's um, uh, who's getting um, quite quite obese. We're we're t- if you go to a, a an endurance event, you'll see a lot of overfat athletes, and it's a very it's a very sad thing, and. Um, and of course, chronic disease uh, keeps escalating. Uh, we're seeing people dying sooner. We're seeing people taking longer to die. So the years of poor quality of life keep growing. And all this is preventable. And what's sad um, is that uh, more people than ever have been given medication to treat preventable conditions. Conditions that can be corrected and and avoided through a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And so we talk a lot about um, the the benefits of fat burning during exercise here on the podcast. And I know that's a big part of your MAF formula or your MAF training that you've been doing for uh, decades now. But you recently wrote an article on um, filmaphetone.com about the 2015 study that's been published um, in, um, in regards to fat burning at high-intensity training. So I just wanted right. you to, to, to speak briefly on that, on, on your thoughts around this, I guess, what seems like new research, but it's certainly something you've been doing for um, decades now. Sure, and that and that was uh, that was that was a study produced by Paul Lawrenson and his colleagues. Um, Paul is in uh, New Zealand, and um, there was uh, uh, there were a couple of the researchers from from Europe. So it was a collaborative effort for the first time, which was very interesting uh, with all our high tech uh, equipment that's now used in the exercise physiology lab. For the first time, they were able to show that 
people and they were using people doing high intensity interval training, they showed that those young athletes doing those high intensity workouts were still burning a good amount of fat for fuel. And we, we've known this for a long time, but it could never be measured. Mm. So we've had to make the assumption that that's what was happening. Um, I, I made the assumption because I found that if we slow an athlete down temporarily, uh, we can incorporate the aerobic muscle fibers to develop better, and those are the ones that burn fat for energy. And if the diet corresponds to that kind of a metabolism, then they start burning more body fat, and we can measure that quite easily. We can measure it at rest, and then we can measure it on the treadmill in a submax test, and even as they increase their heart rate, we could see the, the amount of fat versus the amount of sugar at different heart rates. But once you get to that high level of intensity, it was very difficult to measure, and um, that's what this study, which just came out, um, I think, in September, showed, and it was a really wonderful piece of the big puzzle that uh, we hadn't ever seen. So it was, a, it was a great study. And basically what it means is we're, we burn a lot of fat all the time, potentially. And that word potentially is really the key is if we allow our body to burn fat, it will, it will happen. And we'll, we'll burn fat while we're sleeping. We burn fat while we're doing a podcast. Uh, we burn it when we're training and we burn it when we're racing. And the bottom line is the more fat we burn, the better we race, especially in endurance sports, but, but really in all sports. And the more fat we burn, the healthier we are as well. So we're not just talking about athletes. We're talking about everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that's important to clarify that there are two areas to address when it comes to becoming um, more efficient at burning fat. So we know it's the elimination of the refined carbohydrates, certainly the refined sugars. Um, but with the training influence, um, you know, w w in the world that I'm exposed to, people find it really hard to go slower. Um, can you take us through that, the math method specifically? And I'd love you to share what you did with Mark Allen all those years ago. Sure. Um... Uh, first of all, I should say that not everybody has to slow down. Okay. Um, we, we did a podcast last year um, with a woman, uh, Tracy Hogue, who's a, um, a medical doctor. Uh, at the time, she was living in Denmark. She's now here in the U.S. Uh, doing a residency. Um, and when she started doing the MAF program, she actually had to speed up. And I, I tell you, she still complains to this day that she has to run too fast at her MAF heart rate. That's interesting. Um, and and I, I would say that 15% maybe, give or take, of the people who do that will have to run or bike or whatever uh, faster than they expect, faster than I expect. But that's that's just their body, and they have somehow developed enough of that aerobic function where they're working at a at a, a pretty good level. And now, uh, in order to develop more aerobic function, uh, they need to actually work out faster. For everyone else, um, 
in most cases, people need to slow down and start at a, a level that incorporates all of those slow twitch is what they're called, slow twitch muscle fibers, those aerobic muscle fibers, because you want to incorporate them, you want to develop them, and if you don't slow down, you won't, you won't do that. But what happens is you're not going to be training slow forever. That's somehow what people think, which is absolutely wrong. As you develop your slow twitch muscle fibers and as you burn more fat, you are able to perform more work at the same effort, which means at the same relatively low submax heart rate, you start running faster and faster, you start biking faster and faster, you start going faster because now you have more energy. Think of a steam engine where you're shoveling in coal or other fuel and uh, you want to boil that water faster to make more steam. The more you make, the faster the engine goes and that's what happens with fats. The more we have uh, and the more those aerobic muscle fibers develop, the, the faster we can go. So with someone like Mark Allen, as an example, um, Mark, when I first met Mark, we were running on the track, um, a 400-meter track, and he had a heart monitor on. And I said, this is, this is the heart rate I want you to run at. And we're running along. And... And he got to that heart rate, and I said, okay, this is the pace you want to go. And he kind of chuckled because it was about an 820 pace, 820 per mile. And he said, well, th this, is, um, this is about two minutes slower than I normally train. And I said, well, yes. And then I described the aerobic muscles and how we burn fat and all of this stuff that I just went through. And I said, as you develop this, your, your body will have more energy and you'll be able to run faster. And um, I think later that night or the next morning, Mark called me and said he had gone out on the road with the heart monitor I had loaned him. Heart monitors hadn't come out yet. I was using a uh, device used by cardiac patients in hospitals. So uh, I, I loaned him my heart monitor and I said, go for a run later and, you know, on the roads where you go up and down. And he said, well, gee, I was only averaging about nine minutes a mile on the road. And, but what happened as the months went by, he got faster and faster. Uh, and within, um, within a, a certain period of time, he got down to seven minutes a mile and then got down to six minutes a mile, then got down to 5.30 per mile, got down to 5.20 or 5.15 a mile, or wherever he ended up, all at the same heart rate. And what's the, what's the, the factor that got him there? More fat burning, building up his aerobic system, starting at the right point, and, of course, eating well. The diet actually plays... Uh, more of a, an important role for this than the training itself. Yeah, that's amazing. So he went from an eight-minute mile, which for us is a five-minute K, and what did he go down to? A four-minute mile. About a 5.15-mile. Okay. Just working so out what that looks like for us. Fast. So that's, that's fast. That's, that's 3.15 per K. Wow. Yeah, so it's, a, it's, it's faster than most people can run in a race. Absolutely. 
And just for and those, I've seen that before. I mm. mean, I, Mark, Mark is one of the athletes that um, was so disciplined and dedicated to to all of this that it it worked so well for him. But I've seen this before; it's not unusual. Uh, a lot of people get stuck at a certain point because um, they have a hard time being strict with their diet. They have a hard time because their friends go out and overtrain on Sunday morning and they have a hard time not doing that. They race too much. They're too stressed, whatever. Um, somewhere along the way, some, some lifestyle factor is going to kind of creep in and interfere with your progress. And so the question is how disciplined do you want to be? And those who are more disciplined are going to perform better. Yeah, that's a good point. I just wanted to clarify, just for those that don't know, Mark Allen is a six-time Ironman world champion, <laughs> so a very fit athlete. But, you know, do you have some real-world examples that you can share with us? Or what, what sort of improvements do you see over perhaps someone that's not a professional triathlete? Um, I, 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 boy, I've seen people go from uh, unable to run. Um, these, are, these are runners. So uh, I'm thinking of a runner. A, a woman who came in to see me uh, many years ago um, who was training uh, regularly. She wanted to run a marathon. She had run some 5 and 10Ks and, and then some couple of half marathons. Um, she was uh, over fat. She was injured and um, was just having a hard time. And so uh, I helped her uh, straighten her diet out. She eliminated the junk food and uh, adjusted her natural carbohydrate intake to a level that was uh, appropriate for her needs. Uh, she she trained at a um, a certain heart rate, uh, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but we we found a an MAF heart rate for her to train at, just like Mark Allen did, and uh, she was unable to run at that heart rate. Mm. And she was just incredibly distressed. And um, she uh, came into my clinic unannounced in tears. And I was able to kind of take her into a room and sit her down and explain the whole thing again, which I had done earlier. But she didn't quite realize that she wasn't going to be able to run. I wasn't sure. But I said, you know, whatever you have to do whatever pace you have to go as slow as it might be that's where your starting point is and so we went through the process again and she um, started walking and she found that she was able to walk faster after a week or two and after a month she was able to jog about half of her workout and I, I always talk to people about workouts not in terms of miles or kilometers but in terms of time mm. so a 45 minute workout an hour workout a two-hour workout and um and over a couple of months she was able to to then uh run uh the entire workout as long as she didn't go up steep hills yeah and um and then eventually she was able to run up steep hills of course she'd have to slow down and she went on to um, uh, lose uh, a lot of body fat, become very healthy. Uh, she ran several marathons after that uh, in a very healthy way and was, was uh, obviously very happy. Uh, and I think, I don't know how long, it may have been three years later, and I would see her every now and then. She came in one time and complained 
that she had to run too fast. <laughs> she said, I, I, I can't, when I'm on the flats, I can't run that fast. What do I do? Um, it's, it's too difficult for me. And I, I reminded her that she had the same complaint about running too slow, about walking too slow in the beginning. And she just laughed. And of course, when, when an athlete gets into that situation, we recommend aerobic intervals where you run at that pace for a short period of time and then you slow down a little bit and kind of uh, let your, it's sort of like an aerobic fartlek workout yeah. where you, you run at that pace and develop those aerobic muscle fibers, which are now making you run at a pretty good pace. And then you slow down because your muscles haven't quite developed to run that fast yet. And then over time, you can do it a lot easier. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good example because, you know, as you know, we um, it's that go go faster, go hardest world, um, which many people end up, you know, certainly overtraining and overuse injuries. So although this protocol can take a little bit of time, you know, the results speak for themselves. They do, and and um, I, I I have to emphasize again very strongly that there are two factors that will block your progression, even if you're training perfect, even if you have the perfect MAF heart rate that um, you've discovered, whether it's using the 180 formula or you've done some treadmill tests or whatever, um, if, you're, if your diet is not good, your fat burning mechanism will not work. Yeah. You will not burn enough fat to make the kind of progress that, that uh, you need to make. And then if your stress levels are too high, and eating junk food and eating too many carbohydrates, even if they are natural, um, whether you're allergic to them or they're just too many carbohydrates, uh, is, is a form of stress. But other types of stress, like sitting too much, uh, things like uh, uh, dental problems that people tend to put off, very um, seductive, very hidden problems. Uh, not wearing the right shoes, having foot problems, even seemingly minor foot problems that alter your gait, that creates a big stress. And that stress creates stress hormones, and those stress hormones really reduce our ability to burn more fat. So um, we want to be holistic in, in this approach because when we are, we can help virtually everyone who, who wants to improve yeah, I'm glad you mentioned those points because they are, you know, both topics that we cover quite a lot here on the podcast. But I think the stress conversation is something that athletes perhaps don't, um, some athletes don't take as seriously. Like it's clear that nutrition plays a role. It's clear that training plays a role. But some athletes, when you speak to them about stress management, they, I don't know, I think they, it's probably the last thing they add to the to the um, puzzle. Do you agree? Or? Right. Right, uh, without a doubt, and, mm. and uh, you know, people don't want to admit to being stressed. It's sort of like a, a macho thing, you know. <laughs> oh, I, stress doesn't bother me. The problem is most people don't know what stress is. We are under physical stress, biochemical stress, and mental emotional stress uh, a, a lot, quite frequently, and many people are under uh, all three every day. And it's why they're they're not doing well. Physical stress, like I like I mentioned, the feet, the shoes, um, sitting 
you know, commuting to work in a, in a car is a physical stress. And of course, there are then mental stresses of road rage that uh, sometimes will, will happen. But mental stress can be the frustration of having a physical stress. For example, a knee injury. If you're a runner, uh, knee injuries are an epidemic. And a lot of runners go from one doctor, one therapist to another and another and another and can't get rid of this injury. This is a huge mental emotional stress for a runner. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, make, make it seem oversimplified, but most of those injuries are not that difficult to correct. And it's frustrating, uh, to see so many, uh, the problem is our healthcare systems all over the world are geared now to treating symptoms. And so if you have a, a pain in your knee, uh, most people are going to want to look at your knee and treat your knee. And if that's where the problem is, they'll probably succeed. But more often than not, the problem is not in the knee. It's in the foot or the calf or the low back or the hip or somewhere else that's affecting the knee. And um, when you treat symptoms, um, it doesn't usually work out well. So um, I digress momentarily there. But the other, the biochemical stress is a common problem too. And we, we talk about nutrition, of course, but many times people are uh, drinking too much coffee, for example, and they don't realize that they have gone over their biochemical limit, their drug limit on caffeine. Um, they, uh, they're taking um, a multiple vitamin that may not be compatible with their needs. Not every vitamin and mineral product is good or healthy or certainly compatible with everybody. Um, and that can cause uh, a chemical stress uh, quite well. Um, and on and on. So what I used to do is, is ask athletes to make a list. I would have them physically write it down. And of course, today they can do it on their, their iPhone or whatever. Um, make, a, make three lists, a list of physical stresses that they're aware of, a list of biochemical stresses that they're aware of, and, and mental emotional stresses. And it can take several days to do that because you don't you don't think about them. You, you, you deny having stress to begin with in many cases. Um, but a lot of people don't relate to physical stresses or chemical stresses. They only think of mental, emotional stresses. So write down your stresses. If you, if you hate your job, that's a huge stress. If you don't get along with your significant other, that's a huge stress. Um, and write all those things down. And what I do next is say, okay, I want you to highlight uh, and prioritize each list. So which is the most important physical stress, the most important chemical, and the most important mental, emotional stress. And then work to get rid of those or modify those as best you can. And really, we can get rid of just about anything. We can get rid of our job, our significant other, our car, our house, our training partners, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, the question is, how far do you want to go to get healthy? So I think that that stress list phenomenon, which I've used for uh, most of my career, I think, 
um, is a very, very valuable thing in making people, number one, aware of stress and, and giving them an opportunity to get rid of some stresses. And it's amazing. Uh, we, we talk about someone like Mark Allen getting faster and um, that other woman who, who I mentioned getting faster uh, as time went on. It's amazing how much faster we can get when we kick out some of these stresses that are really hurting us significantly. Yeah, wow. I think it's a really important conversation to have. So I'm glad we, we got there. <laughs> um, so just one last question with um, the nutritional advice. Do you, um, do you go as far as looking at sort of macronutrient ratios or do you just start with refined carbohydrates? Or I know it's a very individualized question, but how do you give someone the advice um, to change their current nutrition? Yeah, it's a good question because um, <clears throat> it it almost depends on the individual, not so much in terms of their individual nutritional needs, but their individual mentality. Mm. Um, are, are, are they going to be able to handle uh, giving up junk food overnight? Some people are not. And so um, we have to play some kind of game. <laughs> and and we do that. And I have something that I developed years ago called the two week test. And it's not really a game. It's a it's a way of uh, allowing the individual to feel what it's like to consume smaller amounts of carbohydrates. Um, in the very beginning, I used to uh, I used to say to people, okay, I want you to start cutting down on sugar. And the goal is going to be to get rid of all sugar and junk food. And so we would do that. And, and you know, day by day, they would reduce their sugar intake a little bit. And after a few weeks, um, I would see them and they'd say, well, I've, I've cut down by, you know, 30% or 40%, but I don't feel that much better. And I realized that this isn't going to work. Uh, I needed to find a way to make people feel better right away with good nutrition to get their attention. Yeah. And so I developed something called the two-week test, and um, it gives them an opportunity to spend two weeks eating low-carbohydrate, no junk food, and, um, and no moderate or high uh, glycemic index foods. Um, so they're eating some carbohydrates. They're, they may or may not go into ketosis. Um, I'm less concerned about that. Uh, in the beginning, but it, it shifts their metabolism, it reduces their insulin in a way significant enough to make a big difference. And the only big problem is they go through a period of time, which sometimes is only a couple of days, sometimes it's a little longer, of carbohydrate addiction, sugar addiction. And from day one to day 14 um, can be quite a life changer to say the least. Um, I've seen a lot of miracles in practice, but this is one that has produced the most. I've seen people go from a state of uh, severe depression uh, to to getting off their medication from uh, uh, people with high blood pressure um, who have to come off medication right away because now they're taking medication, but their blood pressure is normal, so they're actually becoming hypotensive. But also people who lose weight, people who burn off body fat, and all of a sudden, 
for many, many people, the average person feels so much more energy. They, uh, they have more physical and mental energy. They're more creative. They sleep better. Their gut feels better. Uh, their gut flora uh, replenishes itself in a healthy way. Uh, that's a that's an interesting topic. Uh, all kinds of great things happen in a very short period of time, and now you've got their attention, and they'll pretty much listen to anything you you recommend. Yeah, I think that's a good strategy. You get that buy in because they obviously experience the the benefits almost immediately. Um, at least after they've gone through the the rough couple of days while they come off their addiction. Right, right, and then. But then there's another step that's that's very important, and and a lot of people have a have a difficult time with the carbohydrate issue because they say, well, don't we need carbohydrates? Well, first of all, we don't. There's no requirement. There's no minimum requirement for carbohydrates like there is fats and proteins, which are um, required. We have essential fats and essential proteins, and uh, we don't have essential carbohydrates. Um, so we have to deal with this conflict, uh, and most people can understand the difference between junk food like sugar and, and sugar carbohydrates, and, uh, and, and that junk food is bad. But they often think, well, okay, what about fruit? I mean, can an apple be bad? And, and what about a little bit of honey? That can't be so bad. What about... Um, uh, lentils or what about beans and you know so we have to deal with that issue and after the two weeks what I s- recommend is that people start to experiment yeah absolutely. now you've now you've kind of cleaned yourself out in a sense it's not technically what's happened but it's a good um, image they've cleaned themselves out of uh, junk food and they're feeling better and they've probably lost weight. They've probably lost some some inches by now. Um, and they have a number of indicators, signs and symptoms that they had before that they weren't happy with. Those signs and symptoms have now gone away. Now they're going to experiment. And once a day, typically at, at lunch, for example, they're going to add <clears throat> a serving of lentils or they're going to have an apple. Um, or they're going to have a serving of beans. They're going to they're going to add a serving of natural carbohydrates to their midday meal, and they're going to see how they feel. And if they add a servings of bean, add a servings a serving of beans, <clears throat> and they and they feel really sleepy after that, which they hadn't felt for a week or more after coming off all the carbohydrates. Then they know that a serving of beans is too much for them. Yeah. Or they they go on day by day and they, they find some things they can't eat and then they find other things they can't eat. And a week later or two weeks later they find that, well, gee, I've I lost seven pounds on the two-week test, and now it's a couple of weeks later and I've gained four pounds back. Well, that means you've exceeded your carbohydrate intake and you've got to focus a little better on getting back to where you were before. And by, by doing that, people become more intuitive because <clears throat> you've, I mean, we're talking about not people who sometimes uh, are just slightly fatigued, but many times <clears throat> people are 
um, going back to their office after work and falling asleep at their desk. You know, this is, this is just unacceptable. So um, you're much more aware of these things, even the subtle signs and symptoms. So you become more intuitive. You become more instinctual about uh, food. And you can then take care of yourself quite well. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to see. And it's quite a, a, an effective thing. Yeah, I really like that approach because it does simplify it. But again, we put the responsibility in the hands of the individual because, you know, you and I giving people guidance, um, it's exactly that. It's a guide and they're the ones that need to go out in the field and do the experiments and, and they get the, um, you know, the physiological responses to certain foods and it's really important to be in tune with that to be able to adapt your approach um, I guess, you know, almost day to day because as you come off the carbohydrates, you're going to be totally changing, well, some people will be totally changing their tolerance to carbohydrates as well. So, you know, they need Very to much so. retest <clears throat> down the track perhaps. Yeah. Very much so. And, um, it, you know, a lot of people ask, well, what, you know, how, how much carbohydrate can I eat? And I mm. say, I don't know. You figure it out. <laughs> and when, when you figure it out, it's probably going to change as the months go by and certainly as the years go by. And <clears throat> I, would, I would say that um, what people usually find, which makes perfect physiological sense, is that as the years go by, they become more insulin resistant, mm. which means they don't tolerate as much carbohydrate. So they, uh, they discover through their... Uh, experimentation through their instincts <clears throat> that they need less and less carbohydrates as the as the years go on. So someone who's 20 years of age is going to be quite insulin sensitive. They're not going to have as much trouble with insulin. And so their intake of carbohydrate is probably, uh, intake of natural carbohydrates is probably going to be a little higher versus when they're 30 versus when they're 40, 15, 60, and 70. Um, and no matter who we are, we become more insulin resistant with age. And as long as we keep up with that, we stay physiologically younger than our chronological age. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think um, you know, it does show us the importance of looking at our nutrition at a young age. Like Too often I get um, perhaps young athletes or hear of young athletes that Oh, I don't know, they act like they're Superman, they consume gels like they're going out of fashion and they eat junk food, but they're lean and they're fast. And they almost have this view that that's just going to be what they can do forever. And, and my fear is that, you know, that's the pathway to um, metabolic syndrome. Oh, without a doubt. And, and they do the same thing with training. You know, mm. I can train hard every day because I feel good and I'm going to train hard every day. And, you know, when you're 20 years of age, you recover a lot quicker than when you're 30 years of age, mm. even when you're 25 years of age. And the problem with, um, uh, with people is that they'll read the sports magazines that report on scientific studies on high-intensity training or whatever, and they don't realize that these studies are all done on young, healthy college kids. Yeah who are 18, 19 years of age, 20 years of age, and um, they can 
boy, you can beat them up and run them into the ground and they'll still feel fine for a little while at least. And, um, you know, here's a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old looking at the study saying, oh, we should be training hard all the time because that's what this study says. Well, that's not what the study said. So, um, and yes, you're right. They, they do this with diet because they don't feel the effects of junk food as much. And, of course, uh, one of the problems in sports is that all the sports junk food, which, which is meant for for racing, you know, we, we, we can, and we can talk about racing fuel because that's a very important thing. But a lot of these um, uh, sports nutrition products were developed for an event. They were not developed for lunch <laughs> or for snacking or to gobble down while you're sitting on the couch all evening watching TV. Um, but that's how they're marketed, and that's almost everyone who buys them uh, uses them for that. Um, and so, uh, you know, the sports nutrition market is really a market that's focused on the couch potato. Um, that's where the that's where the sales are. So it's it's a it's a it's a, a quite a misunderstanding. Yeah, absolutely, and I think. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on racing fuel, actually, because, um, you know, like with the whole fat burning, um, I guess, influence, how do you guide someone through what they do uh, in training versus what they might do in an Ironman, for example? Yeah, you really, it, 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 the, the race itself is an extension of the training. So, um, uh, for example, and, and I've told this story a number of times over the years, <clears throat> um, whenever um, Mark Allen would win an Ironman race, there was always a media person asking me about how much, how many calories he took in, mm. and I would throw some numbers out, and, and they'd say, "Oh, no, that can't be right because it takes this many calories to run that many miles." And and I said, "Well, you're you're missing an important part of race energy, and that's stored fat." If we can access stored fat, we have a much better supply of energy than we could ever physically consume in terms of um, a sports drink or a sports um, energy bar or whatever people are eating these days. So the, the first thing an athlete needs to consider is before you get to your race, um, being able to burn more body fat so that when you get to your race, you rely more on your body fat and less on having to eat something, which is the last thing your body wants to do in a race. Oh, I couldn't agree more. So start with training. And if you can, um, if you can train two hours without eating anything, which many people can, um, then you should be able to go to two and a half and three and four hours. And if you can't go four hours without eating anything – then you're not burning enough body fat. And as you develop your fat burning and you can do that, then you start to go to four and a half hours and five hours, whatever. And, and then as you've maximized your, your, your stored fat as a fuel source, you can then start adding some carbohydrate energy for the, the race itself. And I typically recommend carbohydrates, fats, and proteins um, but it becomes a game of experimentation for the individual to see which which actually works better. 
But here, here are some examples. Um, how many calories do you need to run a marathon? How many calories do you need to, excuse me, how many calories do you need to take in uh, over and above your stored fat burning? Um, someone who's not burning a lot of fat might need four or 500 an hour. Yeah. But someone who's burning a good amount of fat may only need two to 300 an hour. And I can guarantee you, if you improve your fat burning more, you're going to get down to under 200 or even under 150 calories an hour. So now you've gone from 500 to 150 calories an hour in a race. What an incredible thing to, to, to do. And the stress you take off your gut is, is amazing. A lot of people have trouble in races because of gut stress. And so it's a very, very important thing. Plus, you get you get more energy. It's really as simple as that. I agree with you. I think it's absolutely huge and I don't understand why anyone would stay in that requirement for five or 600 calories, which, you know, means basically you're putting something sugary in your mouth every 20 minutes. And as you say, over an Ironman, the digestive stress is just so huge that someone might spend 16 weeks or more building for an Ironman, but their race comes undone because of gut troubles on race day. It's such mm -hmm. a waste and it's so avoidable. It is avoidable and um, it, it's, it's simple physiology. We have um, an autonomic nervous system uh, in our brain that, that regulates uh, the body and the sympathetic nervous system, which is part of that autonomic system, uh, causes muscle contraction, uh, causes our heart beat to speed up, causes us to breathe more efficiently. We circulate blood better. Um, that's what gets us through the race. And then we have a parasympathetic system, and the parasympathetics control our gut. And so if you think about coming home from work uh, walking through the door, being hungry, sitting down for dinner. We all know that you shouldn't eat dinner when you're stressed and angry and upset because when you're stressed and angry and upset, the sympathetics are turned on and you cannot turn on your parasympathetics to digest your food. So in a race, the last thing your brain wants to do is to have to turn on the parasympathetic system, which it can't really do very well, um, which is what happens when you stuff food into your mouth and, and into your gut. Your, your gut has to work, and it mm -hmm. steals blood from the muscles, so the muscles aren't going to work as well. Mm -hmm. And it's a very challenging thing to do, to say the least. Um, there, you, know, you, you do have to consume some calories in an Ironman, for example. Uh, I think uh, the, the marathoner, most likely uh, the right marathoner who trains well, to burn a lot of fat will not need any extra fuel or even any extra water during those two hours and change because I think the body's more than capable of getting through that period of time. But when you get to uh, even a half Ironman, but certainly in a full Ironman, you're, you're, you're going to need some, some, uh, some added nutrient, but not as much as you think. Uh, and in that situation, you'll, you'll be able to to tolerate what little you put in quite well, especially when you practice it during training. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Nothing new happens on race day, which is what we always say. Yeah. I wanted to yeah. just Although go... you, It's amazing. I, 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 I've always gotten these stories from 
athletes when you know we'd always have a, a a race conversation after their event you know okay tell me what what did you do here what how did you feel there uh, because it it gave me a lot of information and i would would too often hear well i um i decided not to eat this i i grabbed some of that off the table because it looked good <laughs> You know, and oh, come on, you've got a race plan, stick with it. Yeah. You know the race plan works because that's a big part of training and, uh, you know, stick stick with it. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to ask, actually, we mentioned before um, VO2 max or VO2 testing and the gas analyzing. Um, do you use that data to shape an athlete's um, fueling plan in terms of looking at what they burn um, in fat grams and then the, what they might need to top up their carbohydrate burn? Is it that scientific? Um, I, I have used it, yes. Um, it could be that scientific. Um, in the end, it all comes down to experimenting. Yeah. Um, we, can, we can measure fat burning and we can see that an athlete is burning more fat at their MAF heart rate today than they were a month ago, say. Um, we have an easier way of doing that. It's called the MAF test, where they um, they measure, for example, a runner might go to the track and measure a mile, or they can measure kilometers, and they can see that they can run faster at the same heart rate. That corresponds to the ability to burn more fat. So there are a number of ways of doing that, um, and I think uh, I think it's very important maybe less so for me today because I, I've been through this and I know how it works, but for a lot of people, they, they want to see that they're burning more body fat. And so um, a respiratory quotient is a good test for that. The MAF test is a, a you know, when you're, when you're all of a sudden running um, noticeably faster at the same heart rate after a month or two of training, you're, you're pretty excited it's quite a it's quite a a fun experience to have um, VO two max testing. On the other hand, um, I won't say it's worthless because it's a gold standard in in research, and the only reason that it's done is because it's been done for so long. Uh, VO two max does not relate to performance. There are plenty of athletes who have higher VO two max numbers, and they are behind the lead pack at the finish. Um, so I, I, I've learned to ignore VO2 max. There was an interesting study recently that came out showing that uh, high-intensity training will increase VO2 max, which we've known for years. <laughs> but, however, um, it, it impaired gait. It, it, it had an adverse effect on running economy. Well, that's a bad sacrifice to make. Yeah. And it's a sacrifice that, that you make. Uh, you know, VO2 max is more, more of a bragging rights kind of thing. We like to call uh, it a pissing contest. Pardon my French. Okay. Well, <laughs> I was going to say that, but I, I, this is my first time on your show, so I thought I better not do that. Um, I know what you mean, so, and I actually was yeah, referring more to the respiratory quotient and, and the information that you get about the fuel utilization. Yeah, yeah. Uh, running, running. You know what they 
what they do in, in exercise physiology is they relate to running economy from an oxygen standpoint. It takes X amount of oxygen and oxygen to run from point A to point B. And there's going to come a time when they finally realize that the same thing happens with fat burning. If you can burn more fat, you become more economical running from point A to point B. And I've seen that in gait changes in people who burn more fat, their gaits get, get better. So their running economy improves as well. And it's one of the reasons why they could run faster at the same heart rate. Oh, absolutely. The efficiency is huge. Yeah. Very good. Now, I'd love for you to share with us uh, your new app, information around what's happening with your iPhone app and um, where it's going. Sure. We've been working on this, um, I think, since uh, March. Um, and we've been working on a number of things, some of which I can't tell you about yet. Um, but the app, uh, we've, we've gone through beta testing uh, one, and we're now about to uh, do the second phase of beta testing because um, we've added more to it. But the app is a, uh, it's a digital way to evaluate yourself via MAF. It's a way to um, assess your health and fitness, to look at your risk factors, um, to fine-tune yourself in terms of what recommendations are needed because these are the signs and symptoms you have and this is what they mean, therefore you should do more of this and less of that. Mm. It's really a way for you to manage your health better in the digital world. And, and just because we're in a digital world doesn't mean that things are going to be better. We've really had a it's been a nightmare. Digital fitness has been uh, a misfit, as I recently wrote about, um, because people are measuring everything, but they're not doing anything about it, number one. And number two, people are still getting fatter and, and injured and, and sick. So just measuring how many steps you take or how many calories you burn does does not do anything. You have to look at how is this going to help me and, and what do I have to do specifically? And if I remeasure, will it really show there's a benefit? And so that's what we're trying to do with the app. We're trying to give people um, a better way to manage their health in a, in a very simple digital way. And um, that, uh, that app should be out before the end of the year. Very exciting. So you do health and fitness, um, lifestyle, exercise recommendations, and there's also a carbohydrate intolerance check? There is. We, we look at risk factors for a number of things. Mm. Chronic disease is the first one. And a lot of athletes say, oh, well, I don't, I'm not concerned about chronic disease because I'm an athlete. Well, we have unfortunately seen way too many athletes die in the middle of a triathlon or a, mm. a marathon. And shockingly, a lot of athletes have high risk for disease. And it's a very simple thing to evaluate. And if you have high risk for disease, you better see somebody who can evaluate you more closely and more individually so that you reduce your risk factors because they can be reduced. But in addition to chronic disease, we evaluate uh, carbohydrate intolerance, uh, chronic inflammation, uh, the immune system, uh, the digestive system, overtraining, all kinds of things. And we do that through questionnaires, which are very accurate in their assessment of an individual and um, surprisingly accurate. And 
once we get the accuracy, once we get the information, making the recommendations is the easy part. And so they get that as well. Yeah, very exciting. I'm looking forward to checking that out. So very exciting times. Yes, I'm, I'm, this is, you know, this is exciting for me. Um, I think it was about 12 years ago that I woke up one day and decided to be a songwriter. And I pretty much dropped my whole career because I realized that I didn't know anything about songwriting. So, <laughs> so I, I, I wasn't going to have time to do it part-time. Right. And uh, as I got involved with songwriting, as I started um, uh, rubbing elbows, so to speak, with some of the great songwriters, um, they started asking me for health and fitness advice and so I got back into the health and fitness that way and when I when I first created my uh, music website I think it was 2006 I started getting a lot of emails from athletes saying well what should I eat during my race or, <laughs> what, what about this marathon I had this problem how, how, you know and so that that became a website that was half music and half health and fitness. And um, with this new company, um, since uh, March, since I think we launched the new website, maybe in June, and uh, I have a separate music site, which is maffetonemusic.com. But, but the new health and fitness site um, launched in June, and it's, it's just very exciting for me to see the quality that's coming out of that and then the, the app and some of the other things that we're developing. It's just, it's just very, very exciting for me. Yeah, I think so. I agree. I, I must admit, I think it was a couple of years now and I was um, researching some of your stuff online and I came across your music site and I was looking for nutrition articles or information about your career and it didn't exist. So it's really cool that you've now got this home, so to speak, this online home, and um, you can continue to share all your amazing um, knowledge with us. Yeah, thank you. But you you did love my music, right? I did. I did. <laughs> I didn't know that about you. So it was very cool to check out as well. Yeah, yeah. it's still, I still do it. Um, I still write uh, pretty much every day um, and record regularly. I have six albums out, but it's really um, it's it's been a very interesting ride because I could be in the middle of a uh, a fitness article, I could be in the middle of a book, and all of a sudden a song will come out of my head that turns out to be a great song. And likewise, I'll be in the middle of of writing a song. I'll be working on um, a bass part or or a melody line. And all of a sudden, I'll come up with this much better idea of explaining something in exercise physiology that I'll, I'll turn into an article and I'll stop what I'm doing and go and write some article. And it's just, you know, it's, it's really, um, it's all one and the same as one of my songs goes. Um, they're not separate pieces of my life. So it's really, it's really a lot of fun. Yeah, inspiration from one and inspiration from the other. Yep. Mm. yep. Very cool. Now we're coming up to, or oh, we've just hit the hour on the show. So I, um, I won't keep you for any longer. Although I could chat to you all day, um, <laughs> I'll have to get you back on the podcast um, in the near future because I'm sure there's lots more that we can uncover. Oh sure. 
Um, so always, there's always so much to talk about, and you know, if we if we start getting into case histories, I, I know people love case histories mm. because they always see part of themselves in it, and um, and they're they're fun to talk about because they're real. A lot of the the concepts are concepts, and as important as they are. Um, many people look at them as a little less real. I want to know about that woman who had to walk, and I want to know about, of course, everybody wants to know about the big athletes, but it's that average person that people really enjoy hearing about. Well, let's do that. Let's do our next podcast on case histories. Sounds good. Very good. All right, Phil, thanks so much for your time. I'll get everyone to um, head to your online home. It's philmaffetone.com. And um, I'll put the link in the show notes for your app, which is philmaffetone.com forward slash MAF hyphen app. Thanks, Steph. Very cool. Nice to chat. And I'll speak to you again soon. Likewise. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.